Hello and welcome to episode 186 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the amazing writer, incredible actor and all-round just awesome person. I'm joined by the outstanding Steve Oram. Yes, if you've listened to Mark and Me before or any episode has skipped to the end, you will know just how much I love the absolute masterpiece by Ben Wheatley and Steve and Alice, the incredible sightseers. It's one of the best British films you'll ever see. It's very fucked up, it's very dark, but honestly, it's an incredible movie from start to finish. And if you haven't seen it, I hope this podcast does enough to make you go and watch it because it's unbelievable. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, before we get into that interview, I want to touch base and talk about my last episode. I was joined by James from the unbelievable band Rolo Tomasi. We got to sit down and talk all about their brand new album, Where Myth Becomes Memory, and it's still heavily on rotation at the moment on my Spotify. It's absolutely unbelievable, and a huge thank you to anyone that listened to the episode and has taken the time to check out that band, because they really are mind-blowing. But let's get back to today's episode. As I said, I'm joined by the amazing Steve Oram, and we get to talk so much about British comedy, films, stand-up, and so much more. So I think the best thing to do right now is to get to that. So here's me and Steve talking all things comedy. So Steve, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Hello, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. Always. Uh, What I want to do today is for listeners that may have been fans of your previous work, I want to take it before that. I want to take it right back to the very start. So... Growing up, can you remember those first films you watched or maybe acting performances that made you fall in love with the big screen? Well, I, I, I suppose I, my first influences were on the small screen because that was where most, you know, most of this, most stuff was available. So for me, the things that stood out were things like I was always into the big, to the com- the comedies, people like the young ones and oh, amazing, uh, slapstick, idiot. They're, I mean, they're big children, really, weren't they? Just hitting, hitting each other and smashing through brick walls and things, and that really appealed to me as a as an eight year old boy. <laughs> so, uh, um, but also, uh, I suppose that I always was drawn to those la- uh, sort of larger than life comic actors. Um, I really liked Ronnie Barker when I was a kid, doing the two Ronnies, and um, actually Tom Baker doing Do- Doctor Who was a big influence. Just these sort of very odd people doing quite strange things and you, you kind of you you you, you like them but you don't know why and they're a bit scary and that kind of thing always uh, that that template sort of set in stone quite early I think um it's yeah uh, later on I obviously got into people like Peter Sellers and Steve Coogan came later as well and people like that are really sort of inventive character actors really so that that was sort of my always my thing i mean they're amazing foundations and i remember i think it was in the week maybe a thursday night my dad would let me stay up and watch bottom on bbc2 yeah. and people like rick mail i was just like such a larger than life character but i was absolutely infatuated with his performances i was like as much as he's scaring the hell out of me i love him and i'm just drawn to him so that whole young ones bottom adam partridge all those early ones that were on bbc2 and stuff they just the highlights, weren't they? The golden days. Yeah, they were. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's there's nothing like it now, really. I can't I can't think of an equivalent. I think people were allowed to be quite silly in those days, and 
on TV, which you sadly don't see very much, really. I think everyone's um, too worried about offending or upsetting anyone now. You could just do what you wanted then. Possibly, yeah, <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah. Um, so, but, um, so you're watching these incredible shows and you've mentioned some of the absolutely amazing foundations and stuff, but like you said, a bit later on, you would start to take note of other actors and stuff. But what was it that made you want to kind of go down that route of comedy or stand-up or being a larger-than-life character, you know, getting out there and having your voice heard? Well, I, I, it's it's very hard to pin it down as to, to just being one thing I think I think it all comes from I, I probably would consider myself a, a writer above everything else which I think is where um where everything comes from so it's sort of telling stories really and uh in inventing you, you know dramatic landscapes because I you know I always used to love reading and uh, this it all sort of feeds into the same thing you know I was being immersed in imaginary worlds and trying to uh, it, it, it's sort of trying to capture that magic you feel as a kid and excitement you feel as a kid. And I think that that kind of still is true today. It's that child, would your childhood self, you know, like what you're doing? That's always a test for me now is would your eight-year-old self like what you're doing? Would they think it was boring or, you know, a bit... I love that. <laughs> bit up itself, you know, or something. So then you, you can't, you always got to pin it back to simple things. And I think I think yeah. So they sort of um, that 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 was kind of the start of it. And I think if you want when when you get on stage and you do stand up and so forth later, it all comes back to that. But I think I think uh, you don't really know. You just you're just drawn to it and with that excitement. Then you just see where you go. So that's what I did, and used to do things like school plays and. Uh, play music and things like that, you know, mess around with my friends and my cousins and, you know, just arse around all day when we had time off, you know, things like that. And that that, that in itself, and somehow I managed to make a job out of it. <laughs> could, you could you imagine yourself having to go down that other alternative world where you'd have to go to the office job nine to five or do this and do that? Or are you always just like, look, I want to have fun. I want to be able to do something that doesn't feel like work. Yeah, I mean, it, that was always the dream, but it didn't stop me having to do those sort of jobs, you know, um, uh, earlier on in life. Um, but, you know, it's, it is, it is capturing a sense of fun. Um, but it's also, as you find out, working really hard at it. Yeah. <laughs> just say, let's just go and piss around for an hour. It's actually, it actually ruins the fun when you start doing it as a career. Cause you have to, Oh, I've just been writing today. I've just been agonising over. Basically, got about four sentences that are good. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> a whole day's wasted, but I got four lines. Yeah, got four lines, and they're pretty good. I'll probably scrap them tomorrow. Do you know yeah. what I mean? But it's horrible. It's really hard. You just, oh, I just go out for a walk and that, and go. Oh God, I hate this. But um, there is a sense of fun once once you look at it back. I think. <laughs> eventually do you put yourself under a lot of pressure because obviously when you've not got those time restraints in place i suppose sitting there writing i remember it's 20 years ago now that you were doing the circuits in edinburgh the fringe festival and stuff yeah. were you kind of at that point knowing how much you wanted to try and achieve i mean it's early days in your career but were you were you kind of putting pressure on yourself how were you getting to a point where you knew you had to get something over the line and finish that you were happy to take out there in those days 
it was kind of blind confidence to a degree. Because I, mean, I, I started off doing stand-up. Uh, I, I was a character actor on the stand-up circuit in the 90s. Yeah. Which was, you don't really get that now on the, on the stand-up scene. So you'd have, you know, you'd have your normal your, your observational stand-ups. You might, and then you might have a magician and you might have a specialty act and, and you might have someone doing a character, you know, wearing a wig. And, you know, so I did that for ages and uh, uh, that that was... I, I kind of just, I didn't, no one told me how to do it or how you should do it or, or that I couldn't do it, but I was just allowed, you could, you could sign up for open spots and just do it. And so I used to go and watch people doing it and think, oh, I could probably do it or something. And I tried to think of something original to do. And, and that was kind of how I did it really. And that, uh, that kind of, ha- that blind confidence, which you have when you're in your early twenties or whatever is, is really helpful because it just powered me through up until you know things happened quite quickly for, uh, for a period of time for a few years until they started leveling off and then ups and downs you know for the next 20 basically but that that was so so going to edinburgh was was like that you know we just no one really told us how to write an edinburgh show we didn't have a director or anything i was working with my friend tom meaton and we we were just two mates kind of getting stuff together that we like yeah together in a, you know working hard on it but i mean what do you do you just do you just have a go <laughs> that's that's all that that's all that we did and you know it was working though wasn't it you were there you were doing these shows you must have been getting a good reception starting to think actually people are liking the stuff we're doing they were but it was very hard i mean we were conscious that we were well down the pecking order of yeah you know we were up there the mighty the Mighty Boosh were up there, you know, and they had people queuing around the block and doing two shows a day. We were, we were, you know, 20 people and, you know, a lot of mates and things like that. It's quite, <laughs> you know, it's quite sparse. But We'll uh, get you in for free. Please but, just come but, down, fill the room up. Yeah. yeah. But well received, you know, pe- people from the industry came and watched it and liked what we were doing and stuff. So that was, that got led to other work. But um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite tough, Edinburgh. It, quite cold audiences generally um but you know nice it's fun but a bit yeah a bit stilted in, in performances sometimes but i preferred it in london you know doing the clubs which was more a bit more you know rough and ready and people being drunk and up for it kind of thing but yeah. were there some shows that were like off-putting way for i don't know if this is for me because of the crowds were so hard to win over or just because it was just ruthless out there you know drunk people in a bar just shouting abuse or just you know some of these rough and ready places were there any moments you thought i can't be fucked with this like this is just not yeah, worth it well yeah you, when i when i started off i used to do all those gigs because you didn't know any better and you, yeah it's well took me a while anyway to work out that having the right audience is absolutely essential for your, for your act. So I was going to all these, like, it's a terrible, I had, I had this promoter who was, used to give me work and he would, he would just put on gigs in all sorts of unsuitable places, you know, uh, you know, just the, the, the side room of a, a pub in Redditch or somewhere. And it's, it's, it's not even set up. There's no PA that they've got the music on. You can't, you can't really do your thing. So I used to sort of do these terrible places and that was kind of all right for a bit. You kind of learn that you don't want to do that, rather rather have a better audience. It takes a while to work that out, I think. 
And what was it like when you're telling your friends and family and stuff that you wanted to go out there and make a name for yourself in comedy where we talked about people like, I suppose, the Mighty Boosh was Noel Fielding and people, and Anne, you've mentioned today Steve Coogan, these really big, huge household successful names. It's not easy, is it, to get to that height uh, and that level. So when you're telling people that that's what you want to go out there and achieve, you want to you know, be seen and make a, a living, basically be able to pay a mortgage and do all that from comedy, were people kind of supportive or like, when are you going to get a real job? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, they, everyone was pretty supportive, I think. Um, my parents were, you know, that was a very nice, been so easy for them not to have been because, you know, it was, it was financially difficult and uh, at times, but it, it, it I don't know, it's, it's kind of had a, had a death wish to do it, I suppose. So I didn't have any choice and people saw, saw that was happening, but it was, it was, you could, I could see a progression with it. So it was not like, um, it wasn't like I was in the early days, nothing was happening. So it did actually progress quite quickly. Yeah. Previous to doing comedy, I'd been a musician. So I was, which I'd done for years and not got anywhere. And it was, I just gave that up in the end because it was too hard and, then became then sort of did an open spot by chance by you know just on a comedy night just for a laugh really and it all took I got signed on my first first ever gig that's incredible yeah Yeah. mainly because um I invited all my mates down and they were (laughs) like there's carloads of people coming down from Worcestershire you know and and so it's brilliant atmosphere and another mate of ours did a did a spot as well and then the second I got signed up second gig the next gig I did I died on my ass and continued to die <laughs> for, for, for a whole year you know but um the first but, show had like six sides of a four of just guest list yeah basically <laughs> I think they all paid yeah but uh uh, yeah. Signed on your first gig though dude that's awesome yeah yeah was, I thought I was a genius and then I was then I realized that I wasn't quite soon after that it's funny that isn't it but then look at it 10 years later your support for Steve Coogan we've mentioned a few times yeah. it's started to turn into Steve Coogan cast but you and Alice Lowe's support you know that's pretty special that's a, a place to na- make a name for yourself and really start to turn some heads isn't it yeah that was a that was a, a big a big thing to do wasn't it you know just the scale of the the gigs really more than anything uh, because the, you know it's O2 and you know Wembley Arena and all that kind of it's 20,000 people at one gig go oh god what's all this it was really weird <laughs> but in, but you know the industry he was sort of a, a being part of the industry at last really after a lot of time a lot of time of you know, doing you know smaller things so it's nice yeah is that, is that kind of a weird mentality in the way that if you're a band, you're that support slot for a big band and you've got to kind of go on and win the audience over and play a few songs and hope people aren't just like, fuck off, let's get ready for the big band, you know. Are, are, yeah. you, going on, are you going on stage thinking, fuck, everyone's here for Steve Coogan, but hopefully someone might buy a T-shirt or come and see me at the end or, you know, that sort of mentality where you kind of try to warm the crowd up? Yeah, well, it was, we were doing... It was, it was, we were doing bits in between his, yeah. So he was changing. He did four, I think, four or five carrots in the first half. And so we, we filled in the bits between and did, yeah. a, you know, a few little things, which always tended to go down well. And we got nice feedback, but it wasn't, you know, they were all there to see Steve, weren't they? It's his it show. So <laughs> pretty cool, though, to say on your CV that you've got to be part of that and 
you know be on such a yeah. great tour and su- su- the success behind that is unreal yeah and to watch him work as well you know it's a, a you know a master class really it, it, you know watching him i mean he's just a incredibly talented you know, person but he's worked hard at it you know yeah despite... and he's still going now you know we've got new stuff coming yeah. out from him and uh i think he's doing a jimmy savile thing next which is looks yeah. mental can't wait to see that so <laughs> christ <Yeah. laughs> what a on god and I'm blown away when I was doing some research, but I, I love the movie Sightseers. I genuinely do. It's one of my favourite British films, but I can't believe it's 10 years old this year. It's just one of those things where yeah. you're like, fuck, is that, is that really one of those things? But I'd be shot by my audience and listeners today if we didn't talk about this film. And the fact that you wrote it and were involved with Ben Wheatley, who's one of the best filmmakers in the country, it's a film that I recommend to people and if they like it, I know we're going to get on. But if they say to me afterwards, like, what the fuck was that? That was too dark. That was twisted. I know they're probably going to get offended by my sense of humor moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I, I, I get that. I understand that. But, um... Yeah. It's always a good one. You meet someone, you like, do you watch League of Gentlemen? Yeah. Oh, I didn't like that. Okay. We're not going to get on. Do you watch Kirby Enthusiasm? Oh God. I'm not quite sure about that. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, sightseers. Oh God. So, yeah. You know, uh, sitting there writing this, did you ever think it would become this kind of cult classic and this huge film that everyone's, everyone I know absolutely adores this film? I've never met anyone that doesn't like it. Oh, that's very, very nice to, to hear. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, that's what we wanted to do. <laughs> but, you know, I've done lots of projects before that, that where I thought, oh, this is going to be a cult classic and it never was. And this one had the right the right idea and the right people involved to, to make it's just a, an alchemy of time and, you know, people being at the right stage of their career. It's a big collaboration, really. I'm not just talking about me and Alice and Ben, but I'm talking about the, you know, film four and the people who made it happen and pushed it. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, you can make the best film ever. And if no one sees it, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. Whereas this one had, you know, they they pushed they pushed they pushed it. it had 125 cinemas, I think it was, on the, when it was released. It's pretty pretty mind blowing for a small British film. So it was, it was good. You know, it, it clicked into place for you know quite rare a rare thing in 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 life. And it also hit a it was at the right time for people to accept it. it, it you know, the material was right. I think for people to it was felt fresh. You know. Yeah. Uh, 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 sort of the people, there wasn't that much kind of stuff like that at all. I don't think, certainly not in British films. It was, yeah. So it was a, it was a, a lovely moment. Uh, you know, one of the best best moments ever, really, for me. And working with Ben, I mean, he just got it right, didn't he? The feel of the film, the humour, the way it was filmed, the directing—it just feels right. If that makes sense. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's, it, it was. He had a real sense of, yeah, kind of Britishness in a and it not being twee. Yeah, that's sort of how I, you know, a different director could have made that a bit. You know, it's all people with caravans and you know, British. You know, uh, you know the, the the curtain twitchy British kind of thing. Oh, look at those people and what they do in that body. It's, it was more, uh, so he kind of went primal with it, which I think is absolutely 
brilliant and felt focused on the you know the gory the goriness of it and the the, the sort of visceral horror of it really that's the word isn't it like the horror i mean trying to describe it to someone's really difficult until they've just sat and watched the film but it's dark you know and there aren't any other films really like it and when you watch it back now does it feel like the film you set out to make if that makes sense is there anything that was because it was so dark was there things that you couldn't get over the line or was it the film that you put on paper that you were so glad to see transcribed to screen I, I, well, I haven't actually watched it for several years, but my when I have watched it back, I've thought that it it's just hard. I, I can't put it into words. I, it's like something that has its own life. Yeah. Because when when we made it, it I, I'm not, I don't know if it was the thing that we had in our heads. Certain aspects of it are, but it just it, it morphed into something quite interesting, which was. Yeah, I think, and I, I mean, for me, I, I don't think, think it's dark at all, but then I'm really surprised when people say, oh, it's really dark, and go, oh, no, it's just that sort of sick sense of humour. You know, it's a, it, having a laugh. At, <laughs> we, You know, we Alice and I both saw it as a comedy, you know, and, it, uh, and, I, and I think still do, really. But you play it to audiences. We, we, we had, we've had several audiences in Europe who just sit there um stony faced and really enjoy it but kind of they they uh they go they just go what what is this and um whereas british audiences have tended to just piss themselves laughing i don't know it's a, it's a sense of humor thing isn't it and, and has it been one of those things where you've kind of wanted to ever try and do something else not in that world because obviously it ends perfectly but is there another kind of film for that's kind of british feel with ben again or something you'd like to do in the near future, revisit something around those kind of that field, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of, I can't, I can't describe it, but that, that, that film, that feature, that film for British homemade film again. I'd love to. I, I mean, I wonder if a film like that would get made now. Yeah. Uh, and which is a very sad thing. I mean, I think probably more, more stuff happens like that on TV now. Um, but I think Britishness in film is very underrepresented, under you know, full stop. And, and in telly, that celebration of uh, our strange quirks. And I think I think I'd love to. Do, well, I'm working on something at the moment which I can't really talk about, but which is early stages, but has a, has some of the similar um, similar themes, and it's set in the West Midlands. Oh wow! Which gotta do, which you gotta do. And um, is that at the writing stages that you can't tell me anything about it? Yeah, I've had a commission for something, so I'm writing writing that at the moment. But I'll update you. As Amazing. And then, yeah. obviously, since then, you've had a crazy career with lots of TV work, lots of film work. You got to work with Edgar Wright, you know, The World's End with Simon Pegg and stuff. That must have been a great experience because that whole Cornetto trilogy, you know, spaced. Shaun the Dead, all that feel of all that great TV and film, you know, again, we're looking at British masterpieces that are going to stand the test of time. To be involved in that must be just amazing to look back on. Yeah, yeah, I think iconic stuff, isn't it? And I think that whole, um, the whole 2000s British, you know, there's a lot of really good British comedy talent 
Yeah. We're actually making brilliant stuff. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, this does stand up. Uh, watching Black Books the other day, that's really good. And you know, and lots of other Bill Bailey, you know, Sean Locke and people like that all working. And I uh, love 15 Stories High as well. That's the TV thing. But there's a, just a, a sort of explosion of brilliant talent during that period. So, yeah, it's nice to be part of a small part of it. Motorcycle policeman I was in that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a great film to look back on, and that whole trilogy works. And to see that Edgar Wright's gone on to bigger and better things is brilliant. Yeah, he's 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 done all right, hasn't he, Edgar? Yeah. Not, not too yeah. bad for himself. <laughs> and, and with yourself, you said you're writing at the moment as we're sitting here right now. You can't tell me much about it, but I suppose, you know, you, you had your directorial debut six seven years ago now with r however you yeah. pronounce it um is that giving you a taste of doing a lot more directing moving forward are you just still happy with just the pen in your hand to write do you want to be in front of the screen you know do you want to do everything uh i i wouldn't i'd only want to direct stuff that was written by me i wouldn't yeah I don't, not, not interested in particularly being a director director no uh, um but yeah, see, always see see what happens. I I, I love acting and uh, I love writing, and they they sort of seem to to um, exist quite well together because you can if you have fair fair amount of time off when you're acting, you can work on scripts, which is good. Directing is very hard because it's um, it's just so immersive. I think you know you've got to pick your projects unless you're that unless you really love directing. It's really, it's really tough because it's just so much to, to think of in your head. No, I'm not sure I have. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I loved, I loved doing R. That was my, probably my proudest work in many ways. Cause it was such a, it was sort of DIY project and we've got all my mates involved and it was kind of, that was like playing. That was, as we were talking about, just, just yeah. a bit ago, about being, getting all your mates and playing down, you know, down the park, pretend, <laughs> pretend to be apes and, you know, galloping around South London and, stuff like that so it was it was uh yeah i'd love to do more of that i'd love to i love the diy thing because you can just get out there and do it and it, it, you know you have there you have a, pro a product that after you can get you know you can you don't have to spend much money and you can get if you're like me and you have lots of pals who are good actors and funny people you can just get something together fairly easily um so i'd love to do more of that because it's the, the human lifespan's short and I, you know, I spent a lot of time writing stuff that never gets on screen. And I think, you know, going into my fifties, I want to just get more stuff out there. Either, either, you know, film stuff or, or written stuff in books or whatever. Cause it, yeah, I think you just got it really. <laughs> it's too hard. It's such a hard industry to, you know, to 90% of stuff you work on, it's, it's just never never sees the light of day or is seen for a bit and then goes you know so it leads nicely to my next question i ask this to everybody it doesn't matter if they've been you know globally successful or they're just starting out but what advice do you give to people that are listening today that want to be like yourself a writer or get into the acting game when you've literally just quoted saying it's a really hard industry to kind of break through in but the problem is the resilience you know for every 20 projects you sit and write one of them might make it over the line you keep getting no's yeah. or you keep getting there that must be fucking hard to keep bouncing back 
It is, yeah, it is. Um, that's a that's a huge part of it, and also if, if you're an actor, it's, the rejection is constant, isn't it? Yeah, from all parts you don't get. Um, uh, so it's, I think resilience is a big thing. You got you, you sort of look at yourself. Do you want that life? <laughs> Do you really want that life? And uh, you know, it's, there's no security in it really. And he, you know, I was, I was talking, I was talking to, not to name drop, but I was talking to. Timothy Spall at a film festival and he told me he said even now I think it's all going to end you know that was my last job I'll never work again that's what he said to me bloody I hell thought, you're Tim Spall you know <laughs> yeah, and, and and he meant it as well you know and I, yeah. I, I, I feel that I feel that too you know maybe I, I haven't got you know what, where's my next job so it is it is that but I think I think the thing to do is to try is to be original and come at things from a different angle because there's no real set route for doing anything. No rules about how you become a, a writer or an actor or anything. You know, you can train or you can do whatever way into it. But loads of people do. Loads of people have like careers, other career, completely different careers for 15 years and then start being an actor and they're brilliant. You know, there's people like Jed Mercurio who's a, who's a, a, a worked in medicine and now yeah. he's the a huge one of the big figures in tv and that's you know so i think it's kind of finding finding that little spark isn't it the the little thing within you that works uh, that a little bit of originality that you've got that other people don't we don't don't necessarily have and then you've got a niche and then you can use that and power forward because there's loads of people doing the same stuff and or the same sort of stuff yeah, and they're all, you know everyone's good, and then you you need you need an extra you need just a little turbo charge to, to to give you something. It's funny. It's I don't know. It's hard. It's it's hard to you know. It's, I don't know how it to to a degree. It's a mystery. <laughs> so, I don't know. Just just well, like persist. you said, that the, the the some of the projects you probably thought would be successful never saw the light and day and then you've got other projects that have done well that you probably didn't think so it must be really i don't know how you do it i honestly don't i don't know how you can sit there and put all this work into something and it just never gets seen it must be soul destroying but then you take the wins when they come i suppose you do you know a lot of the time you're getting a bit of money so you you know it it is a lot of this thing this career is a job as well so yeah taking and that you've got to find a way through a way of earning money that is compatible with the career because it's not it's not you've got to have lots of different sources of money so part of that is just getting down and doing stuff for money a lot of the time um which is find good stuff through that yeah You don't do it you, yeah that's the <laughs> best advice do don't just gonna get a proper job don't that's... do it get a proper job yeah, that's the best advice. And my final question today, uh, what I do on the Mark and Me podcast to make it c- try and stand out from the others is I let the guest who's on the podcast choose the outro song. And it can be any song in the entire world. But what I do is I only allow it to be chosen on the spot. Because if I gave you too long, you'd probably drop me an email in a couple of days saying, I've got it down to 10. Now I've got it down to 5. <laughs> but it can be any song in the entire world by any band. And I know you love your music, but uh, what would you love to be 
the outro song after all this is edited it's up there it's released to the world ready to listen to but what's the song that you want to be the closing track for today's interview between you and i uh, can i can i have a uh, movie you can have any song from any soundtrack any movie <laughs> score whatever you want i'd like the the waking fright I don't even know what the track is called. In fact, you can choose almost any of them, any of it from that. It's a very weird, um, uh, I don't know how to, to describe it. Anyway, Waking Fright, some of that, find that. Yeah. And show it to me and I'll tell you if it's right. <laughs> if there's one certain track, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look on YouTube and see which ones are on there. And then uh, yeah. you can let me know on email which one, when I found a few. Yeah, sort of very weird, haunting uh, track that appears uh, and you, you, you kind of gets into you a bit anyway. I like the different that's... stuff, you know, some people come on and go, oh, a Beatles song, it's like, oh, okay, Led Zeppelin, you're like, okay, yeah. and it's like, that's good, but I like the stuff that's a bit fucking weird, that everyone's like, what the hell is that? So, yeah, that would be amazing play out music. Awesome. Yeah. And just to say, we're both going to be taking part in the Midlands Movie Awards, which are coming up in... Yeah. Uh, only a couple of months time and i believe we're both judging people's work which is quite exciting yeah what a weird thing to decide who is good and who isn't isn't it isn't it strange but uh it should be great to see all the films i reckon there's going to be some good stuff there yeah it's good to see the little poster the other day and it felt like i kind of made it in a weird way i was like look there i am in black and white with some people that are quite well known (laughs) you are well known Awesome. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the Movie Awards. I can't wait to see what random and crazy films we get to view and hopefully we'll be able to share a beer and talk about the winners in only a few months' time. Yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be brilliant. Um, And, yeah, I'm looking forward to being surprised by whatever people come up with. I'm sure sure there's always some really interesting and strange stuff at at, at these kind of festivals. And, uh, yeah, new talent. Awesome. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, I, I'm a massive fan of your work and I, I can't wait to see where you go and what you're writing next. You've kind of teased me a bit today and I hope that when it is announced or you can talk about it more, you can come back on and we can delve deep into that. Love to, yeah. I'll, I'll reveal all. Just not yet. <laughs> but it's something really? that's based in the Midlands. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, to be fair, most of my stuff uh, yeah. tends to <laughs> no, that's that's the only exclusive I'm going to give out on social media. Yeah. Is Steve talks about his brand new film set in the Midlands. <laughs> it's going to be what a scoop! Yeah, well, it's been brilliant talking to you, Mark. And thank um, you so much, Steve, yeah. for coming on. It means the absolute world to me, and I'm sure we will be speaking very soon about a number of films in uh, great detail. Yeah, great. All right. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Steve Oram. What an amazing guy. And you know what? It's been a long time that I can remember where I've done a podcast and I spent most of it laughing. But Steve is just so funny from start to finish. And I want to say a massive thank you for him to taking the time to come on the podcast. If you're still taking the time to debate to watch Sightseers after that interview, I genuinely don't know what more I can do. It's so good. It's so funny. And please, if you've gone and checked it out from this podcast, let me know on social media because that's what I love seeing jump onto markandme.com because on there there's links to my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram or drop me an email. I love seeing people discover a new album, a new film, a new TV series because of this podcast. It's one of the best compliments that I can get. If you've really enjoyed today's episode and I say it on each and every episode, please share it. 
jump onto your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, and just hit that retweet or share button. Putting it on your stories on Instagram is huge. Many new people can see it and then jump on board and start listening to the podcast. It's a key factor in making this podcast successful and costs you absolutely nothing. I also do have a Patreon page set up. Each and every month I have amazing prizes from Last Exit to Nowhere t-shirts, Richer Sounds and Vice Press. Each and every month they give me exclusive prizes that are just for you guys at home to say thank you for supporting the podcast. You will now be getting an additional extra episode every single month that is exclusive to Patreon. But not only that, some amazing prizes and some exclusive badges and merchandise. It's my way of saying thanks and I need all the support I can get because all the money that goes into the podcast via Patreon pays for me to travel the country and conduct more and more interviews. I don't know if many people know this, but I'm a one-man team. I don't have anyone working for me. It's purely just me. I'll be back in only a few days' time. Things are getting absolutely manic. I want to say a massive thank you again for Steve for coming on the podcast. Also check out the Midlands Movies page on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook because you heard us talk about the awards. And I'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. So until then, look after yourself, take care, go and watch Sightseers and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you.